Just a few days ago now, back on January the 6th, an angry group of protesters stormed the United States Capitol building in an effort to disrupt and derail uh, the confirmation of our nation's presidential election results. Uh, it was a chaotic and violent scene. Five people died, including a police officer. And it was a shocking scene, something we tried to communicate to our children, like this is, this is going to remain in our collective memories. It's gonna be in the history books for decades to come. Um, this is something we won't soon forget. Uh, not me, not you. But something that struck me as I watched the events of that day unfold, it was the widespread presence of Christian words and symbols in the midst of it all. When we see pictures of the crowd, we see large banners that say, Jesus saves, and other banners that say, Jesus 2020, as if he were a, a political candidate running for office. In one area of the Capitol, uh, people raised up a huge wooden cross, while over in another area, at the same time, people raised up a gallows with a noose hanging from it, and they chanted for the hanging of certain elected officials. And so one of the things that haunts me, besides the incident itself, is the question, what conclusions would a person come to as they watch all of this unfold? I mean, what might a person think about Jesus as they see his name being attached to stuff like this? What would a person assume the Christian faith is about as they see a cross being erected while the Capitol building behind it is being violently stormed? Y'all, we are at a crisis point as a nation right now. And I don't need to convince you of that. It's very plain to see. But we're also in the middle of a crisis of Christian witness. Never before, now this is just my own opinion, but never before in my lifetime has it felt so urgent that we need a revival, a renewal of what it simply means to be a Christian to clarify what a Christian is and how that man or woman is meant to think and behave because right now it's difficult, perhaps, for a person on the outside to have any idea who we are, what we believe, or what we stand for. And so to, to define terms, to get back to center, that's, that's something we all ought to be doing with regularity anyway as we reaffirm uh, and delight in our Christian identity according to the scripture. But now, more than ever, it feels like, for the sake of the church, for the sake of our presence and our influence in the larger culture, it's absolutely necessary that we define what we are and that we live accordingly. Y'all, Jesus called us a city on a hill, meaning we are meant to be a people who are a welcome beacon of light in a harsh and darkened world. And so today, I, I want us to look together at 
how the Apostle Peter both defines us and then describes us. There's this wonderful section of scripture in 2 Peter chapter 1, that's where we'll be today, 2 Peter 1. But Peter's going to do us a, a, a tremendous favor here. All in one part of, his, of the first half of this chapter, Peter gives us a portrait of the Christian life, both who we are, that is what we believe, and how we live in response to it. Now, this scripture divides neatly into those two halves, and so what a Christian is, he's going to let us know, but also how we live, what it means to live in the light of who we are. And y'all, that is so essential for us to understand. As we look at this today, and as we walk through our days uh, as those who know and love Jesus, it's who we are that informs and animates how we live. Who we are uh, is the determining factor in how we operate. And that comes across very clearly right here. So begin with me, uh, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, as he defines first what it is to be a Christian. What is the gospel that we believe? Simon Peter, he begins, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these, his glory and excellence, he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. When Peter defines what it means to be a Christian, one of the things that comes through very clearly in these verses is that all of it comes to us as a gift. All of it is granted, and that word granted shows up multiple times. These things are granted to us by a God who loves us. If you look back at verse 1, Peter defines his audience. He says, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Y'all, the basis of faith is 100% what we receive. That's what faith means. You put your faith, your trust in someone else. What they do, not what I do. There is no work to be done on our part in order to become a Christian because all the work has been done on our behalf. That's why it's given by God and received by us. And Peter tells us how it's accomplished by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. His righteousness is what saves us. We receive it as a gift. Now, if Peter were to stop right here, he's given us enough in one sense. He's told us that we have faith in Jesus Christ and it's his righteousness that saves us. That's enough to get us there. But that's really only one facet of the gym. And I love what Peter does here is he doesn't stop 
there. He gives us a fuller picture of what it means to be saved. Look at verse 2. Peter says, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. God doesn't merely get us out of spiritual jail. It's not merely that we're unrighteous and now we're righteous, and that's all that God came to accomplish through his Son. But no, Peter says, look, all grace and all peace are multiplied to us, are given to us in abundance in the knowledge of Christ. And then in verse 3, seeing, this is us seeing, that his divine power has granted, gifted to us everything pertaining to life, and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us or saved us by his own glory and excellence. What does Peter mean when he says the knowledge of Christ, the true knowledge of Christ? That's deeper than academic knowledge. That's just not knowing about someone. It's more than that. It's relationship. It's genuine relationship in the way that we would say, I know my family, my wife, my children. I don't just know about them. I know them. That's true knowledge. That's what this means. It's the privilege that you and I have been given by God, not just to know about Jesus, but to actually know him personally, to know him intimately. Jesus framed it the same way back in John 17. He made this declaration in the midst of a prayer. He's talking to the Father, but he says, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life is to know God. And because our knowledge of God is not just information, it's actual relationship, he now grants to us everything we need for life and godliness. Because we are united with Christ, we don't just believe in him abstractly, but we've actually come into relationship with him, we now have everything we need to live the life that God created us and desires for us to live. And y'all think about how amazing this is. Peter is saying salvation is not just rescue from sin, and relationship with God, once again, that would be more than enough, certainly more than we could deserve or earn. But Peter says it's a new life entirely. It's a new life in the here and now. By God's divine power, he has given to us all things that pertain to our present life with Christ and the godliness that God calls us to live out in the world. So he has not only rescued us from our sins, he's not only brought us into relationship with him, but now he has equipped us and transformed us for a new life here on this earth. And Peter isn't even finished there. Look at verse 4, he says, that by God's own glory and excellence, he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises to make us partakers of the divine nature that we might escape the corruption of this present world. In other words, God unites us with Christ and makes us part of his family. And therefore, every promise of God is ours in full. When the Apostle Paul speaks of our inheritance 
We have an inheritance that God promises to us, an eternal glory that is now ours because we are God's sons and daughters. We're brought into the family. Therefore, we are heirs. What God says he will do, he's obligated himself to do. He will not change his mind about us. All of his magnificent promises are ours in full. And that means the promise to live now in the grace of Jesus as we walk with him, as well as the promise to share in his glory forever and ever. That's what it means to be a Christian. I mean, Peter has just gone over and above to try to show us the glories of what God has done for us. And again, every single thing we just read is what's been done, not what we do. God has granted it all. And so in summary, if we said, what does it mean to be a Christian? Well, we could say it means that God has granted to us salvation, righteousness, grace, peace, the true knowledge of his son, everything pertaining to life and godliness, union with Jesus, escape from corruption, and all of God's precious and magnificent promises. All of it given to us as a gift because God loves us and desires to share his glory with us, to bring us to himself forever. Y'all, in Jesus, we have an embarrassment of riches. We should feel spoiled by the way that God loves us and grants us these wonderful new realities. We receive, by faith, we receive a new, abundant, eternal life, life with God that never ends. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's the message that the world desperately needs to hear, that they might receive that grace for themselves. But that's only one side of what Peter wants to show us now. Because the obvious question in coming out of all of that is, okay, if that's really true, if God has really done these things for us, if we've really received all this as a gift, well, then what difference does it now make? Certainly, it's clear already that God didn't do all of this merely just to get us into heaven one day, but to make us alive and godly in the here and now. So what does it mean, then, to live out this new identity as God's sons and daughters, as those who know and love Jesus Christ? Well, that's the question that Peter aims to answer next. If I am new, if God has made me new, what does it look like to live it out? How am I qualitatively different? Well, if you're a person who likes lists, then today's your lucky day. I like lists, and Peter gives us a list right here, a list of qualities that give reflection to, that give evidence of our new life in Jesus. So look with me at verse 5. He says, Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence. And in your moral excellence, knowledge. And in your knowledge, self-control. And in your self-control, perseverance. And in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. 
Now, you notice an, there's an interesting balance in verse 5, where Peter says, for this reason, meaning in light of all the wonderful gifts God has given to us in his son Jesus, in light of the gospel, now, Peter says, with all diligence, live a certain way. And we might be tempted to think, well, wait a minute. If everything God does for us in the gospel is a gift, I don't have to work to, to have it. I don't have to earn it. It's received. Then why should I have to be diligent about anything? Why, why do I have to, to do anything if it's all a gift? And in that case, we've, we've misunderstood what the gospel declares. It's not to say that God gives us everything, so just chill until he takes you home. No, you don't work to earn what God gives, but having received it, here's Peter's point, having received it, you now give your all to him. Effort is not opposed to grace. And that's what we're being called to here. If, if everything is a gift and God has lavished it upon us, your response should be absolute commitment and devotion to the new way of Jesus, to living out your faith. God demands it and deserves it all of our devotion. And through, he says, do this, live this new life, through, and he gives us a list. Moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. Now, we remember what Peter has already said. God, in his divine power, has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. So what we're being commanded here is the practical outworking of that promise. God is at work in you to produce these things. We're not left alone to try to figure it all out. But this is what God desires and by his grace will produce in us. This is what the new life looks like, Peter says. And it's not meant to be a complete list. There are things we don't see on this list like peace and joy and so on. But right here, we're given a snapshot of what it means to live in the reality of life in Christ. And so very quickly here, let's define terms. These are my own definitions. They're not meant to be perfect, but they're just, they're meant to be short, okay? So look at these seven things with me very quickly. Moral excellence means that we live in purity and dignity of character. We seek to live out the character of Jesus Christ. Knowledge means we are devoted to God's word and God's will. And increasingly, we know what is right and good and how to live God's will out because we are knowing God more and more. Self-control means we master our desires and our temptations rather than being mastered by them. We have self-control. Perseverance means we trust God and we endure through hardship. We are patient, we are trusting, and we do not give up. When life is hard, we persevere. Godliness means we are devoted to Christ and we are obedient to him. There is a goodness of character that comes as we obey our Savior. Brotherly kindness means that we are gracious and good to other people. And we are constantly seeking to put them above ourselves, to regard their needs above our own. And then finally, love. And the word Peter uses for love, this Greek word is agape, and that is the strongest word for love that's given to us in the Bible. It's the kind of sacrificial love that Jesus displays for us on the cross. 
And what it means is that we're committed to treating others with the same self-giving love that we have received from Jesus. Okay, so what's the point of the list? How, I mean, how do, we, how do we respond to this list? Are we supposed to put the checklist on the fridge and tick off how we're doing day by day? Now, I think here's Peter's point. If God has so poured out his love upon us through his son Jesus, if God has really made us new, I mean, if we really believe that, then we will with all our hearts, we will desire and pursue a life that lives it out, that shows it forth in our practical day-to-day, in our thinking, our deciding, our desiring, our speaking, our acting, in everything that we do, we want this new life to be evident within and without. And we do that not just for our own personal spiritual growth, but we do it for the glory of God, and we do it for the good of our neighbor. Because all of these things that Peter calls us to ultimately will spill over for the good of those around us. And so when Peter gives us these, these, this list of commands here, um, don't do what I want to do at times, which is to take a great list like this and then pick out the ones I feel like I'm already good at or the ones that maybe are, are easier for me to abide by, as if I were picking electives in college. None of these are electives. We can't just say, you know, I, I could use a little more moral excellence and perseverance, but the rest of it, you know, I'll just kind of set, I'll set aside for another day. Now look at what Peter says next. And I love this verse. He says, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you and I are living and growing in these godly qualities, we will be useful for God's purposes in the world. And we will be fruitful, always growing and producing that which is good in our relationship with Christ. Isn't that not an amazing promise? What a promise that God doesn't just want you around as his pet. God doesn't want to keep you around to exchange affection now and then. No, God calls you his son or his daughter. And he calls you now to be a fruitful ambassador for Jesus in this world. And so if these qualities are ours and if they are growing in us as they're meant to be, then we become useful to God and fruitful in our walk with Christ. But there is a flip side to this, something that Peter tells us next. He says, for he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Last week we saw how the Apostle John put this. If we don't obey Jesus, what evidence is there then that we really know him? If the obedience isn't there, then our, our knowledge of Jesus is really just abstract. It's just lip service. And right here, Peter is making ultimately the same point. If the qualities of the Christian life are not present in my 
heart and in my behavior, then Peter says, I have blindly forgotten. I have departed from salvation. It's not merely a lack of character. It's a deviation from Jesus himself and his gospel of grace. I've, I've, I've become blind to the truth about who I'm supposed to be, about what a Christian really is. It's not just that I've missed the boat on a few details, but that I've shut Jesus out of my life, and therefore the qualities are not present. This is serious business. And so taking everything that, that Peter has told us in these verses, we could, we could maybe summarize it like this. Christians, by definition, we are people who have received God's grace to know and trust Jesus. We've been given life in Christ. And therefore, we are increasingly living out the way of Jesus. The life that's been given to us is constantly spilling over into our thoughts and our desires and our behaviors because how could it not? And y'all, if that's true, if what Peter is saying is true, and it is, then that means there's not a single area of your life or mine where this does not apply to us, where somehow Jesus is left out and he cannot touch and influence it. Every single thing we think, say, and do falls under the application of what we've just been given, who we are because of Christ, and what it means now to walk with him. So this, you can apply this in a thousand different ways right here and now. It will apply. It covers everything. Um, but I, let me, I want to make just one very specific point of application today. Um, and I want to make it in, in light of our, of our present moment, something that I brought up at the beginning of this message. Um, y'all, I know that the storming of the Capitol building was an extreme incident led by extremists. I realize that, that none of us were there, and that's something that none of us, I'm, I assume, at least the vast majority of us, would never even dream of doing. We'd never do anything like that. But I, I want us to be clear on something. As you and I navigate the world as Christians, and just speaking the truth, especially if you, if you look like me, if you are a white evangelical Christian, we need to recognize the whole that we are now in. I mean, 30 or 40 years ago, the knock against Christians, the knock against the church was, well, we're just too morally legalistic. We're too, too harsh and narrow about behavior, about what qualifies as good and bad behavior. You may remember those days, but you don't really hear that much about the church anymore. That's not really the gripe anymore. Now, the assumption that is made about American Christians is that we are people who desire social and political power. We want to be in control of this country and where it's headed, and we want our way of life to prevail. And therefore, we will elect and support anyone who promises to uphold our values and our way of life, no matter who that person is. And we will demonize anyone who gets in the way, who stands against our values and our way of life, who threatens us. See, the assumption is, in the end, we've got a Jesus banner 
But we're just like everybody else. We want to be in control, and we want to make this country what we want it to be. And that's what Christians are. Now, you may not like that assumption, but I'm here to tell you that that's what's carrying the day now among those who, who live and operate outside of the church. We might say we know better. I might say I'm not like that, but it doesn't matter because there's enough evidence around to make the case. And I'll tell you right now, there's enough evidence today right here on Facebook to make the case of professing Christians who are fighting, threatening, mocking, spreading conspiracy theories, uh, slandering others, acting hatefully, all in the name of getting what we want, all because things aren't working out the way we want them to. And so we become, in that sense, just like anybody else. And we justify it. We've made it okay in the name of society or politics. We've made it okay to hate our enemies. We've made it okay to act aggressively and shamefully as long as it gets us ultimately where we want to be. And, y'all, I don't say that as an accusation. I say that as a confession. Because at least for me, the evidence might not be on Facebook, but the evidence is in my own heart. I know my own heart. How tempted I am to trust in people rather than trusting in God. How tempted I am to value power and control in my own way as opposed to the way of Christ, which is humility and sacrifice and service. The temptation for me to to hatefully dismiss others, those people, the people on the other side, rather than loving them and praying for them as Jesus modeled and commanded. All of that is present in my heart, just as I'm sure at least some of it's present in yours too. Y'all, the truth is, it's an all too common thing for people to hold up a Jesus banner over our lives. He's our mascot. But at the same time, we might live in ways that deny his grace, that deny that we really know him. We want to be known by him, but are we living in such a way that reflects what we've read today? Y'all, this is why Peter is very quick and very bold in his warning to us. You may very well be blind to reality. You may very well have forgotten what Christ has done for you. If the qualities of godliness are not yours, if they're not growing as they're meant to be. And so I just, I want to very soberly for myself and for all of us, I I, I want us to to consider what we're being called to here. Two things here as we close I want to call us to. And, And these are not original to me. This is just what we see, I think, in the scripture. The first is repentance. Repentance, which means we recognize our sinfulness and we decisively turn back to God. And for a Christian, repentance is something that's meant to happen all the time. I mean, every day we're meant to be repentant people. I mean, remember, if if Peter says, God has graciously given us everything pertaining to life and godliness. We have right now everything we need to live the life that God desires for us. 
So where we find ourselves blind and forgetful, where we find ourselves deviating and excusing away our sin rather than owning up to it, we're called to repent, to return. Jesus has saved us. Why would we ever walk another path? Why would we ever give ourselves to to any other hope or trust if Jesus Christ is our Savior? Then we need to be able to ask the question and look in the mirror and, and soberly say, have I given myself to a hope, a trust that's outside of Christ? Have I excused myself from from the fruit of Christian character in order to have my own way? All of us have in one way or another. And I know those are painful questions to ask, but that's what it means to repent, is to look our sin in the face, to call it what it is, and to turn instead to Jesus. And y'all remember God has granted to us all that we are. There's nothing that you and I have to earn to get what Christianity declares uh, our faith is. I mean, what, what, everything that we have has been gifted, it's been granted. It's 100% the gift of God. And so when we repent, when we recognize our sin and turn back to God, there's no earning our way back even then. There's no payment plan. No, repentance means we return to God and we find him gracious. We find him abundantly forgiving and merciful. And it's our determination, having returned to the grace of God, to remain there. Repentance, the goal of repentance is not just to get back to God momentarily, but it's to remain with him, to reject that sin, and to live in Christ. And so we've got to repent. I've got to repent. And the second thing, the last thing is, we need revival. I mentioned this word earlier, revival of Christian witness. Revival means breathing new life into something. I mean, if we, and if we really believe the good news of Jesus, that Jesus Christ loved us and laid down his life for us, then you and I ought to constantly be revived in our desire to know him and walk with him and live for his glory. This revival should be constantly happening in our lives. If we find ourselves deviating, to look at Jesus and to be renewed in our affection for him and our desire to live for him. That's why we're being called to diligently pursue moral excellence and knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. To be renewed, revived in these things always requires for us a, a determination, having received from Christ everything he came to give, why would I want my life to be marked by anything but him? And so may God revive our hearts to live out our faith in a way that adorns the good news that we believe. Your life and mine, it's meant to shine a light on the good news, to make the good news practical, that people might see it and say, my goodness, it's actually true. It could actually be done because they see the effect of the new divine life we've been given, lived out. If these qualities are yours and are increasing, then they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is a promise.
that God actually wants to put you and me on display for his glory in the world. He wants to use us. He wants to make us useful and fruitful in things that will matter for eternity. God doesn't have to do it that way. He chooses to because he delights to glorify himself in his children. Y'all, Jesus called his church a city on a hill. Meaning we are a people who are a welcome beacon of light in a harsh and dark world. That doesn't begin in Washington or somewhere else far away. It begins right here, in and among us. As those who know and, and follow Jesus Christ, we are Christians because God is gracious to us. And we live out this new life to the glory of God and to the good of our neighbor. May we have no greater ambition than to know him and by how we live to make him known. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for the the sharp edge on these words today that Peter is so very clear. The glory of the gospel, what we believe is not just information, it is transformation, it is new life. We've been given life, and we thank you for it. And I pray, Lord, that if, if if anyone is listening to these words right now, and somehow we're missing the heart of Jesus, who loved us and gave himself up for us, who loved us so much, Jesus loved us so much, that he would give us everything for life and godliness. He poured all of it out. He poured himself out to serve us and to die for us. Lord, if we can't see your heart somehow, then show us with blinding light. Show us just how good, how merciful you are. And Lord, let Jesus be our trust and our hope. And so that Father, so that we might be the kind of people we're called to be, that you envisioned and called us to be when you created us and saved us. A people who are are not just carrying the banner, but doing whatever it is that we please to do, but that we would be the kind of people who reflect the heart of Jesus, love and brotherly kindness, moral excellence and perseverance, knowledge and self-control, that all of these things, Lord, would be increasing in our lives, growing like a tree and bearing good fruit. Because we have trusted you and devoted ourselves to you. Father, help us to see that we that the burden of, of the future of this world is not on our shoulders. Help us to see that. We don't have to, we're not going to fix all this. But, Lord, we can be, and I hope we will be, a people who reveal the righteousness and goodness and grace of our Father, that there might be revival all around us. Lord, where we are pigeonholed, where assumptions are made about us as to who we are, what we believe, and how we operate, Father, let let us not constantly feel the need to defend ourselves, 
Let us simply do what is right. Let us simply live for Christ. And would the, the sweetness and the light of that witness be the most attractive thing in the world. Lord, thank you for the grace that you've granted to us. Lord, encourage us now as we walk in it. In Christ's awesome name, we pray. Amen.